0: listener production
1: Welcome to Up Close, Conversations with Modern Veterans. I'm your host Adam Shand. In this podcast, I speak to recent Australian Defence Force members about their lives in the military, the defining moments in peacetime and war, when they were tested as individuals, when their training was put into action, and how the legacy of their time in the ADF impacts on their families. We'll explore the transition out of uniform and the search for meaning and purpose in civilian life. In this episode, we'll reflect on why they joined up and what they expected.
2: My name's Fred Campbell. I joined the Navy in January 1982 as a young apprentice, engines and airframes fitter in the Navy. I did close to 36 years of full-time service before retiring. January January 1982, at eight o'clock in the morning, I think mum and dad were dropping me at the uh, recruiting centre and uh, I was a young 15 and a half year old, uh, full of excitement and dread. I was very good at um, school, but I didn't love it as much as I used to. But mum and dad said I could leave as long as I got a job. And at that stage was getting a trade. So I applied for a number of different jobs, about five different jobs, including the railways, uh, Garden Island, number of different jobs, as actually as a fitter and turner. And this f- person came into uh, my school one day, wearing the uniform, thought, well, that looks all right. And he was telling me about this thing called Navy where you can do an apprenticeship. I joined the Navy um, not, for, um, not for queen and country, as we often talk about. I actually joined because of that to get, to get a, an apprenticeship. And then I learnt the Queen and Country after I joined. And you could have got the apprenticeship on the railways or? Oh yeah. How would life have looked if you'd done that? We take different journeys for reasons and maybe this was my reason to take this journey, but I would have been completely different. I just would have been one of my my old schoolmates who was still living in the same area, doing the same things, (laughs) it's very hard. I'm glad I took this path we get to wear a uniform, someone dressed us, I got paid. That was the big thing. I'm going from school where I was a paper boy was my biggest pay to um, suddenly these people are going to pay me to get an apprenticeship. So my perception was, was a job. On the one hand,
1: you became a professional sailor. On the other hand,
2: you're fighting for queen and country. It's, Mm -hmm. it's quite a combination, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's in, in a way, it's almost a holistic journey that not many people get to do. To me, it's a it's a sense of pride. It's a of of being able to do that. Looking back on it now, does it feel like a job, or was it something you were called to do? No, <laughs> far from that. Um, 1982, far from a job. It's it's a calling. Uh, it's it's way way beyond the job. Yeah, we get paid and we get to do some exciting things. But it's what, what the government asks us to do, what the Queen asks us to do and all that, and we just go and do it. It's beyond a job. For Fred Campbell, the Navy was a way to gain a trade. But one fiery night in the
1: Persian Gulf in 2004, Fred came to understand what it meant to command and serve alongside his comrades.
2: HMAS Narimba, where I joined through, which is just the other side of Blacktown in Sydney, uh, it was somewhere between a boarding school... And could be the island of uh, what's that? A um, uh, Lord of the Flies <laughs> with 800 uh, under 18-year-olds, because predominantly we joined between 15 and a half and 17 and a half was the age groups that that the apprentices joined at. So you can imagine what it was like. And when I reflect back now, completely different to that that particular moment in 2004, where it wasn't about. Um, a job anymore. It was about serving our country and doing what we were trying to do.
0: Hi, my name's Lorraine Hatton. I'm a Quandamooka elder from the Nugi tribes of Minjerribah and Mulgumpan. Now, some people might go, oh my God, what does that all mean? It just basically means that I grew up on North Strabroke Island. And the Quandamooka area is the Moreton Bay region and Morgumpin is from Moreton Island. So I have links to Moreton and North Stradbroke Island as well. I come from a, uh, a large family. I'm the youngest of 11 and I've served in the military from the 14th of January 1986 to the 16th of August 2007. And I am currently the Indigenous Elder for the Australian Army and I do a lot of community capability building with various organisations.
1: I think it's fair to say that Indigenous people have had a complicated relationship uh, with the Australian Defence Forces and the nation, yet they've stepped up in successive wars to serve a country that sometimes didn't recognise their own citizenship. Um, How would you describe your reason for joining up?
0: My reason for joining, sometimes I used to get really embarrassed about telling this story because... I joined purely for money. I come from a big family. Um, I'm the youngest of eleven from North Stradbroke Island, and I used to think we were really poor. And um, when you're when you don't have money, that's what you're looking for money. And by the time I deployed to Afghanistan, I was a warrant officer, and I'd been in for approximately 19 years, and. A lot of people ask me, oh, Lorraine, how do you find it? And I said, just imagine that when you work, you do your job day to day. What we do is we train day to day to do our job in a war zone. For me, it was a pinnacle in my career because I'd trained and trained and trained. And even though I'd deployed for humanitarian relief and deployed to the Sinai, this was the pinnacle of my training. My father joined and he served in World War II. By the time I enlisted at 19, my father had passed away at 18, so he never knew that I enlisted into the Army. I was reading my father's service record and it said that he went AWOL um, to go and drink with his mates. <laughs> it was like typical Australian. <laughs>
1: Tell me, what did earning a salary at that time mean to you in the context of your family and what duties and responsibilities you had?
0: Well, sometimes when I I tell my story with regards to my career, I usually tell people that, you know, before I can tell my story, I have to go back and tell, you know, the story of the people who came before me and our ancestors about how they went through the challenges. And when I think about it, I think that, you could basically say they were, they were the first equal employment opportunity for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. It wasn't defence that had the issue. It was the government and the policy of the time. The government and the policy under the time had the Flora and Fauna Act.
1: Just, let's just understand what the Flora and Fauna Act imposed upon Aboriginal people.
0: Well, they weren't classified as, as citizens at all. They couldn't own homes, they couldn't own land, they couldn't own anything. If you take, for instance, in Brisbane, a lot of people know where Boundary Street is. There's several boundary streets there, and that is the boundary that Aboriginal people couldn't go into unless they had a letter or a certificate to say that they had permission. And even the
1: greater discrepancy is the country was happy for Indigenous people to fight and die for a country that didn't recognise them?
0: Well, that's the sad issue. They were happy for them to fight and die. Some of the um, enlistment parameters were lessened, and I actually have documentation from the War Memorial where when they couldn't enlist, it said unfit for service Aboriginal, unfit for service half-caste, and that's the terminology they used during those, that era, and obviously when I joined, they, they didn't use that at all, but um, th- there's actually a policy that was written by the government to say that when they were relaxing the rules, if they could prove that one of their parents was half-caste or of European background, they could enlist. And we even had people go so far as, And I know someone in my family, great, great uncle Richard Martin, he lied and said he was born in Dunedin in New Zealand to be able to enlist. Even back in 1985, when I first tried to enlist, I wasn't successful because of my education levels. I had year 10, but obviously at the time they they required year 12. Because I come from such a large family and I, if I ever if I ever wanted something, I would go to someone and somebody would say, on, like, if I went to my father, he'd go, no, you can't have it. So I'd go to my mother and she'd say, no. I had 10 other siblings to go through to get a yes. And I think that set me up in good stead because when they told me no, I tried a different avenue. So I went and looked at joining the Army Reserves and they accepted me and they said, oh, what would you like to do? And I had a thought, think about it, and I thought... Am I allowed to do recruiting? And they thought that was pretty strange because there was other things I could do that was a lot more exciting. And 10 months later, I walked in and I said, oh, I'm thinking about joining. And they said, yeah, Lorraine, come on in. And that's how I got in. I couldn't get in through the front door. I had to go in through the side door.
1: So when you look at what you've achieved in your work today and you reflect upon the calling at the beginning, which you said was money, and that's fair enough, um, you've seen your call and your relationship with the Defence Force and the nation, I guess, as well, change. How do you reflect on your journey uh, and those points along the way where the calling changed?
0: I think when I enlisted, it was very, it, it was for security and my independence that I didn't have to rely on anyone for what I wanted. And because I, I liked the army lifestyle because you get fed every morning, three squares a day and a bed, you know, Um, and the people that you you meet along the way. Like I said, I went from a family of 11 to a family of thousands and obviously everybody has different personalities. You're not going to like everyone, but, you know, eventually you get on in the end and, you know, and in the army you're supposed to look after each other and have each other's backs and I think that for me, was very important, I think because I came from a big family. But also, during my period, I found I didn't have an issue with my race or my colour. What I had was an issue of being female because when I enlisted, Army was going through, or Defence in itself was going through a whole change. And women used to have their own schools for training And when I enlisted, they changed it so that women now did training with the men. So throughout my career, I did a lot of first and was a guinea pig for a lot of change in in army.
3: My name is David Nicholson. I served in uh, Afghanistan in 2011 with MTF-3 uh, Combat Team Alpha. Also served uh, in the Navy prior to that up on uh, patrol boats and got out in 2018 with 12 years service all up. As I was growing up, I was watching all the war movies and, you know, seeing dad in uniform and my auntie and uncles uh, that are my parents' best friends. They've been at almost every posting that we've lived in as well. So I've always had, always had them around. Um, And yet, mum is a big history, uh, military history buff. It sort of uh, stuck with me when I was young and I was always playing armies in the backyard and it was a dream for when I was little and then growing up, I went straight into it. Well, the whole family's army, but you joined the Navy. Why? Uh, <laughs> so that uh, <laughs> that basically happened because of uh, one of my best mates, he was joining the Navy. I was joining the army and he basically said... Uh, come join the Navy with me. If you don't like it, you can go to the Army. And me being me, I was like, eh, okay. So I was always going to end up there, but I ended up joining the Navy first and I copped a lot of flack from the family. Um, So I was a bosun's mate up on the patrol boats up in Darwin um, from 06 to 2010. And that was during Operation Resolute. What was that like? Very busy during those years, um, which is... Not good, but also good at the same time. Um, so we'll flat out um, boardings all the time, which was nice when it was stand down, no boardings, because we went fishing. But yeah, heaps and heaps of boardings. I couldn't even count how many, how many we did for illegal fisheries and um, the people smuggling boats, but it was a lot. The biggest risk was probably the boardings themselves. Uh, a lot of the boats weren't very seaworthy. And we we're boarding them at night in some pretty rough seas. So getting on the boat was probably the riskiest part. A lot of the time uh, at night, if we were boarding, um, the people didn't know we were on there until until they woke up. So you know that's the way you want it. You want them to be calm. So they would uh, they'll wake up and we'll be there, and there's not much else they can do. And when you've got a patrol boat sitting next to you, uh, people get pretty compliant. They did have a little uh, trick they liked to do. They figured out um, once they were in the water, we were obligated to take them. So what they did do was uh, as we were boarding, they would pull out bungs out of the ships or boats and um, basically sink the vessel. And a number of times we were on board when they sunk the boats. So that was probably our biggest risk. After that, you decided to join Army. What was the what was the impetus for that? Basically, I wanted to... You know, Afghan was really starting to kick up then. It was 2009, Mark, I really started to think, OK, now it's time to, to move over. Um, you know, get amongst it with the boys. Hi,
4: I'm Kim Morgan Short. I am a medical officer or a doctor, as we call them, medical officers in defence. I've been in the reserve 29 years, 30 years next June, coming up for 30 years. I currently work for Defence Force Recruiting and I'm a double widow of two serving officers. I am the mother of a serving officer and I'm an officer in my own right and a veteran in my own right. I would say that my entire world has been service My grandfather served in the Air Force in World War II. Uh, We were all pretty impressed by those stories. Uh, I remember my father didn't go to Vietnam because he was uh, in an engineering company and they kept people who were tool makers back in Australia. And I remember my mother saying how glad she was that he didn't uh, go to Vietnam. I wanted to do uh, cadets, but it was a it was a toy up between riding my pony and going to pony club, which I ultimately chose. Uh, when I started medicine, I wanted to do medicine uh, through the Air Force. I actually was intent on becoming a surgeon at the time. Uh, so I went through medical school, finished medical school, and ended up uh, dating a pilot, actually, and... Through that pilot, I met my husband Shorty, another pilot, and we quickly got involved and at the time we, in those days, it was very difficult to uh, have co-location postings was what it used to be called. So we decided that I would join the reserve rather than the full-time military so that I could pick and choose where I went and I could stay home with the kids because he was always away so that's how I ultimately ended up joining 30 years ago next year in the reserve
1: it's been a it's been a a very involving life a very dramatic life a very sad and tragic life at times how do you reflect on that that service family that you created and 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 the 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 challenges that have been
4: there for you and the family I think there's been very many times where I would like to have walked away from it all. I've just felt it was overwhelming and almost to a point at the moment where I feel like it's taken so much away from me. On the other hand, uh, tomorrow night I'm having uh, all of my second husband's friends who were also my first husband's friends over to his bar downstairs. We're intensely close. There's a group of people that I you know, have shared a very rocky road with. None of them escaped scot-free. I mean, they've had multiple friends die. Uh, we've all had multiple friends die and I just happen to have had two husbands die. And those shared experiences actually create a connection that's unbreakable, to be honest. So part of me wants to walk away and the other part of me can't let go. A life with no regrets. Oh, there's regrets, definitely. Um but I, I think I've had an extremely interesting life. I've had a very loving life. I've, I've been very happily married twice. Uh, many people in the world don't get that and I've been ultimately very fortunate. Uh, I had gorgeous, handsome, exciting husbands. We've had an incredible life. I've Had three great children and two great stepchildren and we've lived all over the world and had incredible times. So I don't think... There's regrets, but obviously there are things that came into the factors of um, the things that happened to me where I sometimes think I would choose a different path and not have spent a lot of my time doing what I did. And then I stand back where I am now and think, well, many things have changed in the military and part of it was because of uh, a path I took and part of me is grateful for that.
1: Brisbane Girls Grammar School, full academic scholarship, going into medicine, that would be a journey to a a fairly suburban, predictable sort of life. Would you have been happy with that sort of a life, looking back?
4: Uh, A lot of my friends have gone down that path and I actually used to be incredibly envious of them. They've maintained a lot of our university connections, school connections. Uh, and haven't had the sort of riotous, crazy life that I've had. And part of me does envy that, for sure. And, you know, I think my mother would have liked to have seen me married to a doctor or a lawyer and having a very suburban life. And in saying that, my my family have always supported my choices and have come along a bit on the ride that we all had in this uh, crazy military world. Tell me about Anthony Short who was he he was a good catholic boy uh he went to maris brothers in canberra he was very young when i met him he was 22 we were absolutely crazy in love he was a big tall handsome rugby playing box headed thick necked six foot two you know bloke he was just awesome He was good at everything. He had a brain the size of a planet as he was described at his funeral by his commanding officer. He was a bit of a larrikin, naughty, but very warm and loving and absolutely adored the children. He really wanted to become an astronaut. So he got selected at 20, actually 25, but he was 26 when we were over there and doing the United States Navy test pilots course. Andy Thomas paved the way as an Aussie astronaut, albeit he's an American citizen, and Shorty thought he could possibly uh, come along behind that and ultimately become an Australian astronaut.
1: In episode two of Up Close, conversations with modern veterans, our recruits talk about the training phase of their careers and learning the value of skills that will later become second nature on overseas deployments. Up Close Conversations with Modern Veterans is a listener production in association with the Australian War Memorial. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Executive producer is Todd Stevens. Audio production by Ed Gooden and Link Kelly. Listener.